Uh, today's scripture reading is John 3, verse 16 through 21. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is the word of God. Happy Father's Day to all you dads out there. I hope that you've enjoyed your day so far. For those of you who perhaps find Father's Day to be a not-so-happy day for any number of possible reasons. Um, I don't want you to feel as if um, you are somehow alienated or ignored today. In fact, what God's Word has to speak to us speaks to those of us who, for whom Father's Day conjures up all kinds of great thoughts, but it also speaks to those of us for whom Father's Day perhaps brings sadness, reminds us of brokenness or of loss. What we're going to see in God's Word today, I hope, will, will reveal to you the love of a God, a fatherly God, whose love runs deeper than any human dad possibly could. So I invite you to pray with me before we jump into Christ's words today. Lord, we come before you in humility. Father, we come before you as worshipers who desire to worship you in the power of the Holy Spirit and in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. And so we ask that you would continue to meet with us and, and speak to us. We, we ask that you would, by your Spirit, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would open up the eyes of our hearts, open up our hearts, no matter how firmly they're shut down, open them so that we can recognize and receive the love that the Father has for us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. God loves us. The Bible tells us so. It's right here. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So if you are from this world and you live in this world, then this is true for you. This love that we're talking about right here, it is an absolutely inclusive love. When God says the world, he means the world. So let's not try to place limitations on that. Instead, let's absorb that for a moment. The God who made everything that we can see and can't see loves us. Now, the Bible never once tells us that we deserve his love or that we've done anything to merit his love. But it does say that he loves the world. Well, what do we make of that kind of universal statement? 
It should awe us, shouldn't it? But maybe it doesn't. One reason I think the world may not appreciate the magnitude of this truth, one reason the world may not appreciate God's love is because we may feel that we're entitled to it. After all, he is God. He's supposed to love us. That's his job. But that's not the attitude that the authors of the Bible take. In fact, it's interesting. In the Bible, when God expresses his love to the world, he doesn't list out all the things about us that make us lovely to him. Here's what I mean. Um, Most of us have been to weddings. And we've heard the, the sorts of beautiful things that brides and grooms say to each other as they exchange vows. For instance, I might say to my wife, Delimar, who I expected to be sitting right there so I could look at her, but she's not there. I hope she's listening somewhere in this building. I could say, Delimar, you, I love you. Over the years, I've seen how selfless you are. Delimar, you've been my biggest supporter. You've spoken wisdom into my life. You've stood with me and shown so much strength and and patience along the way. What am I doing? That's all true, by the way, but what am I doing? I'm, I'm listing the reasons why I love her. I'm listing the character traits that make her so attractive, so lovely to me. God doesn't do that when he talks about his love for the world. He doesn't say, I love you, world, because you're such a humble bunch. You're so generous and so honest. He he never says, what I really love about you all is how you keep my commandments. It blows me away. How well you, you care for the people around you. You're you're, you're all so welcoming to outsiders, to the stranger, to the refugee. You're you're so loving towards those who are not like you. I can't stand the thought of heaven without you. All of you. No, God doesn't talk like that to the world. Instead, what's communicated to us in the scriptures is this. The creator God loves us, not because of who we are, but because of who he is. You see, God doesn't tell us all the things that make us so very lovely. Instead, he shows us that he is so very loving. And the truth is, if God loves us, he must be extraordinarily loving. With all that he knows about us, with all he knows about our words and our actions and our thoughts, What has he seen over the course of your life, in you, or even over the course of this day? Has he seen selfishness? Has he seen infidelity? Has he seen hypocrisy? Listen, the fact that God loves us says much more about him than it does about us. It says a lot more about how loving he is than about how lovely or lovable we are. And when our hearts are open to recognize the beauty of that reality, then we will love him. We'll love him more than we love anyone or anything else. 
And we will love him, not just because we need him, but because we've been awakened to the beauty of his overflowing grace. God lavishes unearned love on undeserving people. Now, I wonder if that sounds like good news to you. For some of us, maybe that sounds like great news because we know we're undeserving. And we know, just a, we, we, we have just a, an inkling of what God sees when he looks at our past or he sees, us, sees our track record, how we've treated others and him. And so when we hear that God is offering up grace, I mean, he's offering love for free by grace. Some of us, we're filled with encouragement by that. That's our only hope. But I wonder if for some of you, maybe that doesn't sound like such great news. A woman once said to me a couple of years ago, I get tired of hearing this message of grace over and over again. She said, it, it, it's like you're telling me that God says, you're ugly, you're worthless, but I love you anyway. That's how she understood this message of grace. You're ugly, you're worthless, but I love you anyway. And I told her, no, no, that's not what I'm saying. That's not what I've tried to say. And if, and if I've communicated that unintentionally, I'm very, very sorry. What God says is this. God says, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. God says, you possess beauty, dignity, worth, more than you know. You were made in his image to reflect him. That means you're glorious. You're an image bearer of your creator. Each one of you, as you sit here, whether you feel beautiful and glorious or not, it's who you are. No, you're not ugly or worthless. You are beautiful and oh so valuable. But the same God who says that also says, you have rebelled and rejected me. You have proudly walked through life as if you're a God to yourself. You have taken the image of God that I have imprinted on you and you've marred it, warped it. And in doing that, you've offended the true God and you have hurt others in your path. Still, he says, still, I love you. You see the difference here. It's not you're ugly and worthless, but I love you anyway. It's you've rebelled and rejected me. Still, I love you. This is the heart of God toward the world. And my prayer is that we'd see it and respond the way that God calls us to respond here. The section of John that we're looking at today, it tells us more about God's love. It's probably the, the second half of a conversation that Jesus Christ had with a teacher named Nicodemus. I say it's probably the second half of a conversation because that's debatable. Um, in first century Greek, here's an interesting tidbit. First century Greek, the language that John wrote this in, there were no quotation marks. Writers didn't use them. So we can't know for sure if this is still Jesus talking here or if it's the narrator speaking here. Either way, it's still God's word for us. And I, for one, am, am still convinced that this is still Jesus speaking. And here's what he says in verse 16. He says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, 
Familiar words for some of us, right? In order to get at the gist of what Jesus is saying in this whole section, we're going to break it up into three parts, and we're going to label them this way. The reason God sent his son, the result, and the response. All right, so the reason, the result, and the response. First, the reason that God sent his son. When we hear those words, for God so loved the world, the, the Christian Standard Bible, which is a different translation than the one I'm using here, it gets a little closer to the original meaning of the original language. It translates it this way. It says, for God loved the world in this way, he gave his only son. You see, you see it's, it's not only about God loved the world so much that he gave his son. That's part of it. But what this verse is also saying is, how did God love us? He loved us in this way. You see, it's telling us about the specific way in which God loved the world. How did he express his love? He expressed it by sending his beloved perfect son. And, and this act of love for a fallen world reveals God's heart of love for a fallen world. This act of the greatest love ever shown reveals God's heart for a fallen world. But why? What made it necessary for God to express his love with this gift? He could have expressed his love differently. Why did he express it? By sending this gift of his son. The end of the verse tells us. Look at verse 16, the second part. It says, so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus Christ did not come to the earth to condemn humanity because we were condemned already. That means God's verdict of guilty was already on us. When, when humanity first sinned at the beginning of human history, we were given a sentence of death. Humanity was exiled from the presence of God. And ever since then, humanity has continued to sin against God in a variety of ways. Look around you. You see the injustice, the abuse, the infidelity, the dishonesty, the hatred, the racism. And, and that's just for my news feed. How about in your own heart? What sin do you see there? Whatever those sins are, they boil down to this. We have not honored God as God. And we have not loved others as we love ourselves. And so that sentence of death and separation from God in hell remains on humanity. Now, it's hard for us to see that as loving we're just talking about how much God loves the world. Now I'm saying the world is condemned before God. How do those things make sense together? A, a God who judges and condemns sinners, how can he be said to love? We need to understand that this God of love is also a God of justice. He's a God of holiness. And, and furthermore, beyond that, we need to see that God's judgment itself should be understood as an act of love. 
Does that sound backwards to you? His judgment is an act of love. Consider the words of the author, Scott Sauls. I'm going to read a quote to you from him. Listen, if there is no ultimate accounting for evil, in other words, if there is no final justice and judgment, what do we say to the Jews about Hitler? What do we say to little girls who have been sold into sex trade by greedy, oppressive scoundrels? What do we say to the boy who was abused by his father? Or the widow who was robbed? It's too simple to merely say that our God is a God of love and nothing else. He is a God of love. He is a God of justice. He is a God of holiness. And he will not let evil prevail. God loves us, yes. He also loves justice. And he won't allow evil to stand so, so in order for our sentence of death to be lifted and for life with God to be restored, humanity needed rescue from outside this world because this world is fallen. Loved by God? Yes, this world is loved by God. It's also fallen and broken and helpless and sinful. And so if rescue was going to come for this world, it needed to come from outside this world. And that's why, motivated by love for this world, God sent his son into this world. You see a little bit more about the love of God here, don't you? His love is not just a generous love, it's a rescuing, sacrificial love. When you really love someone, you give them gifts, don't you? Those gifts might be material or they might be intangible. But what does that gift do? That gift, when you give it, it says, I thought of you. I I wanted you to have this and I hope it makes you happy because I care about you. So here. And if it's a really thoughtful gift or a very valuable gift, man, that, that communicates such deep affection to us, doesn't it? When someone has put in the thought and the energy and the money, Sometimes, to give us a gift that's really meaningful, it communicates so much love. But, but have you ever seen someone in trouble? Have you ever seen someone you love in trouble? Trouble that they brought upon themselves. Maybe it's, it's legal trouble or financial trouble. It's their own fault. But now they're stuck and they're helpless. How much do you need to love someone like that to say, I will get you out of trouble even if it costs me everything I have? I am willing to take your trouble upon myself. I am willing to lose everything so that you can be rescued and lifted out of this predicament. Gifts are great, but sacrificial Rescuing love, that's a whole new depth of love. That's something we reserve for the very special few in our lives, isn't it? That's the depth of love that God is telling us about here. A love for the world that gives up everything to rescue. A love for sinners that gives up everything to have us. Now, some have misunderstood this. Um, That is, they've seen, well, if God the Father 
wants to rescue sinners, so he sends his son, then isn't that kind of unfair for the son? It's a reasonable question, right? Some people have, have understood this as seeing like God the Father and God the Son, Jesus Christ, are kind of at odds here. It, it's divine child abuse, it's been called. The son is seen as some kind of unwilling pawn. He, he's offered up as a sacrifice, even against his own will. No, Jesus doesn't need your sympathy. He disagrees with you. He's not an abused son. Look at what it says in John 10, verse 18. Jesus Christ says, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. You see, the son is a willing participant in this great act of love. The will of the father and the will of the son, they're united here, as they always are. The one Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they're carrying out this plan together, unified, through sacrificial rescuing love for a fallen sinful people. That's the reason that God sent his son. What's the result? What is the result of God sending his son? Number two, we skipped over this at the outset, but this whole section of John, it, it begins in verse 16 with an important little word, for. For. For connects everything here back to verses 14 and 15, which we looked at last week. Because back there in verses 14 and 15, Jesus says these words. He says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of God, or the Son of Man, be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. We saw this last week, but... Jesus Christ is alluding to this remarkable event in history, in the history of the Hebrew people. After God freed his Hebrew people from, is from Egypt, they're, they're wandering through the wilderness, they're on their way to the promised land. They sin horribly against God, and so God disciplines them. He, he punishes them by sending the, these poisonous serpents that, that bite these Hebrew people. These, these poisonous snakes, they, many of, them get, get, many of the, the people get terribly ill. Some of them die. And Moses, who's their leader, he, he goes before God and he cries out for mercy. And God has mercy on them, like a father. And God says, Moses, here's what you need to do. Form a large serpent out of bronze. Kind of like the serpents that have been biting you. Form a serpent out of bronze, a big one. And, and, and fix it to this rod and lift it up before the people and tell the people that whoever looks at this bronze snake will be healed. And Moses does this and, and God uses that serpent, lift it up to heal his people. So Jesus points back to that strange event and he says, all of that was foreshadowing me and what I would do and why I would come. Jesus is saying, I will be lifted up too on a cross to die. And whoever looks at me, whoever believes in me, they will experience what those Hebrews experienced, new life. You see, the cross 
was pointed ahead to, foreshadowed by that bronze serpent. Of course, there's at least two differences between what happened with that serpent and what Jesus did on the cross. One difference is this. The bronze serpent was an inanimate object that was simply put up and looked at. Jesus went on the cross and he himself absorbed the poison of his people's sins. Took it in. Absorbed the judgment and the curse that his people were due. He healed them through his anguish. He was poisoned so that they could be completely healed. There's another difference too. The healing that came through that bronze serpent was temporary. The new life that comes through the death and resurrection of Christ is eternal. Not just new life, eternal new life. Anyone who believes in the Son will not perish, but have eternal life. This means that if you believe in the Son, then right now, right here, the condemnation has been lifted. You you see the love of God in this. It's not just God acting upon the Son against the Son's will. No, it's the Son and the Father together, willingly doing all this. The Father gives the Son, the Son gives himself. And what do they do? If you find it strange that a loving God would condemn sinners, think about how loving this God is. He's willing to take that condemnation upon himself so that sinners could be restored to relationship with him. Freed from the chance of any future judgment. That's the love of God. It's easy for Christians to sometimes live with a weight of guilt and condemnation. Do you ever walk through life feeling that way? You condemn yourself and you feel, I haven't done enough for God. I haven't, I I failed too many times. I'm not where I need to be, clearly. And when you're living with that kind of weight on you, it's, it's because you're forgetting the power in God's great act of love. Or you've stopped believing that because Jesus Christ was lifted up, you've already been freed from sin's guilt. Whether you feel like it or not, the same God who sent his son says so. And you can trust him. Because if you would send his son, why would he ever lie to you? 1 John 4, verse 10. It says, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. You want to know what love is? What it really is? You can look all around you at different examples. You you can look at the way uh, a dad stares at his baby daughter. There's love there, isn't there? The, The way that a family shares with one another and depends on one another. When a family doesn't hold secrets but speaks truth to each other within a household, that's love. When a, when, a, when a kid won't turn her back on her friend, no matter what she does, because I love her too much to turn my back on her. 
That's love too. And yet, if we want to see love in its purest form, here it is. God is its source. For eternity, listen, for all of eternity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have enjoyed that love together. Within the communion of the triune God, there's been nothing but openness, transparency, understanding, and deep, deep love. And here, in the gospel, that love is shared with us. That same divine love that has existed for eternity, it overflows and it extends to fallen humanity. When the Father sends his Son to be the propitiation, that's the love of God within the triune Godhead. It, it, it's overflowing to the rest of us. When God sends Jesus to be the propitiation, propitiation is a big word, I know. It simply means this. It means to be the satisfaction for our sins. He satisfied the requirement. He paid fully the debt that we have incurred. And with his death and resurrection, there's no more debt to be paid. You, if you want to see love in its realest form, John says, go to that source. Every other example of beautiful love that you see, it's just an echo of that. And it's meant to point us back to that. On a day like Father's Day, if you happen to be a dad, or if you happen to have a dad who you love, you might start to feel like family is everything. I mean, this love right here, this is everything. No, this love right here, it's only a faint, a faint echo of the love that has existed in eternity, has its source in God, and that God pours out to us by sending Jesus to die for us. The more you absorb that, the more you meditate on that, I mean actively dwell on it, like intentionally. I'm not going to get away from this as a fact that I know and I'm going to walk away from. I'm going I'm to keep my mind on this fact. I'm going to pray over it. I'm going to ask God to, to show me what this means. The more you dwell on this truth, then, then here, listen, the more that sense of condemnation and guilt will be lifted. I'm talking to you as Christians. For those of you who are followers in Christ, who study, who, 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 who struggle with the sense of existing condemnation. Listen, this is how the Spirit works often. He, he directs us to the love of God expressed through Jesus Christ on the cross. And, and, and as we realize the depth of that love, and, and as we more and more are deeply convinced of its reality, the Spirit comes and he lifts that weight of guilt. And he leads us into the freedom of knowing that we are forgiven and we are accepted and we are deeply, deeply loved. Lastly, the response the response to the father sending his son. 
Verse 19 of John chapter 3 says this. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things, they hate the light, and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. In the opening chapter of the book of John, John calls Jesus Christ the light. Do you remember this? We can go back several weeks. He calls Jesus the light, the light who is coming into the world. And then later on, John says, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Those early themes from the gospel of John, they're, they're showing up again here. It's the same themes that, that John is introducing here. The light came into the world, but many people did not receive that light. Why? Why? John says, because they loved the darkness. And why did they love the darkness? John says, because their deeds were wicked. Here's how Christ diagnoses our problem at one deep level. He came, many rejected him because they loved the darkness rather than the light. And why did they love the, the darkness? Because their deeds were wicked. Jesus Christ has the power to expose us for who we are. Jesus, he, he penetrates the darkness of our lives and he shows us the true us. His words, his, his presence, they have this revealing effect. You see it in the book of Isaiah. The prophet sees the Lord lifted up for the first time. And all of a sudden, he sees himself differently than he's ever seen himself. It's like he's, it's like he's just opened up and left naked before God. He sees the Lord and he says, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips. Jesus has that effect on people. And we see it even in this conversation with Nicodemus. This is a brilliant, revered teacher of scripture, comes to talk to Jesus. He's a religious, upstanding man. Jesus, within moments, reveals him to be ignorant about God and about God's word. This man probably hasn't felt ignorant in years. Now, all of a sudden, it's like he's been disrobed. Jesus shows Nicodemus that, that his religion and his morals, they're inadequate to earn him a place in God's kingdom. They, they don't amount to anything. They, they don't get him any credit. He reveals Nicodemus to be a sinner in need of new life, just like the rest of us. The fact is that when God regenerates, it's a word we introduced last week, when he gives new life, he reveals to us how sinful we are. And he continues to do that incrementally over the course of our lives. It's as if he turns the lights on so that all the dirty deeds and the words and the thoughts, they start to become obvious to us. We, we used to live in them comfortably with the lights off. <laughs> But now when the lights go on and we begin to see the squalor of our lives, we're shocked. 
Notice something interesting here, though. Jesus doesn't say that people rejected him, rejected the light, because they didn't find his claims believable. Or because they weren't convinced that he was really the son of God. Those might have been factors, of course. But underlying all of that, he says, the issue wasn't an intellectual issue. It wasn't an issue of, well, Jesus' signs and his words, they weren't convincing enough. They rejected the love of God in Jesus because they loved the darkness. They loved their sin and wanted to continue in sin unbothered. I don't know about you, but for years I refused to believe in Jesus. And on the surface, I had strong doubts about his claims. I had very strong doubts about the truthfulness of these scriptures. But eventually, I came to see that what was underneath those issues was this. I loved my sin. And once the Lord began to open up my eyes to show me my sinfulness and to, and to plant in me a distaste for that sin, it was amazing. All of a sudden, Jesus' claim started to become a lot more convincing and beautiful to me. His Bible began to look a lot more real, um, reliable to me. You see, the underlying problem, when we love the darkness, we don't want to leave it. This passage is a call to step into the light, if you have not already. It's a call to abandon the darkness and receive God's love. You see, God does, God does love the world, there's no doubt. There, there's, when he says, I love, for God so loved the world, there's a, a universality to that. There's, a, there's an inclusiveness to that. But listen, there's a love that he has for his people in Jesus Christ. Those who have believed in Jesus Christ that is deeper still. When we believe in, in Jesus the Son, what we are brought into is a much deeper experience of his love. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we're brought into covenant with God. That means intimacy. It means security. He commits himself to you to protect you and to provide for you to love you, and to cherish you. And you are promised eternal life with him. So how are you responding to God's love? We're all responding to it, by the way. There's no way to be neutral or passive If you choose to be passive, you are actively refusing his love. Are you willing to reconsider that? If that's you? Listen, we saw it before. Without him, you are already condemned. That, that doesn't make you any worse than the rest of us, believe me. You may be a far better more moral and upstanding person than I ever was. I'm not out to offend you, but it means that you are in the same place that all of us would be 
apart from the rescuing love of God in Jesus Christ, standing under condemnation, under judgment, for the sins we have committed and for the good that we have failed to perform. But there's no need to stay there. 1 John 4, 9 says, this is how God showed his love among us. How did God show his love? Well, you know what he's going to say, don't you? He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. Over and over and over again, God says, you want to understand my love? Look at the cross. This is a message of extreme grace. It may be familiar to you. Frankly, it's familiar to me too. This is a message of radical, extreme grace. It's God reaching into the world to rescue rebellious people from themselves and from his own wrath. And it's God doing this at extreme cost to himself. The cost of his own beloved son. The son with whom the father existed in perfect union and fellowship and joy eternally. He is willing to let go of that son, give him up. He's willing to lose it all. And it's Christ willingly walking into the mess of this world. The son willingly receiving the worst that this world had to offer to be rejected by the people he created and mocked by people that he came to die for murdered by people that he came to rescue. If you're skeptical of anyone's claim to love you that much, consider Christ on the cross again. God's not all talk when it comes to love. You know the stereotype. There's always a stereotype of the guy or the woman. Usually the stereotype goes it's the guy who's willing to speak words of love, speak words of love, but there's an unwillingness to commit. An unwillingness to show. It's just talk. God's not just a talker. Look at the cross and you see the love of God in the flesh, hung up and bleeding for us. Jesus' arms are wide open, nailed open, open to receive wrath and open to receive you. That is God's posture towards you in Jesus Christ. Do do you ever long for a person to love you like that? Who would give everything for you? Even die for you? Maybe you've already found someone in your life who loves you that much. But listen... The only one who is able with his love to make you whole, to give you lasting peace and forgiveness and wholeness, is Jesus. And if you have believed and you have already received that love, he has embraced you and he will never let you go. What's that worth to us? Can you say in response to that, can you say like that old hymn that we sing sometimes, love so amazing, so divine, it demands my soul, my life, my all. 
Please pray with me. God, we don't understand why we can be so blind, so cold to your love. We can only chalk it up to our own fallenness. Spirit, would you do the work that only you can do? Open up our hearts to recognize and to receive the love of the Father in the Son, Jesus Christ. In his name we ask it. Amen.